This is Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice. Conversation based on the book Hurt with Fetters, hosted by Pastor Greg Smith and author Jason Karsh. This is a podcast for people who want to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. Well, hello again and welcome to Hurt with Fetters. I'm Greg Smith and I'm here with author Jason Karch. And we thank you for joining us. Today we are going to be talking about forgiveness, a reflection on forgiveness. Jason, good to see you today. Glad to be here again, Pastor. So just right off the bat, let me just start with this. The title of chapter 12 is a reflection on forgiveness. And we're talking about theological uh, reflections on the criminal justice system. When you think of the criminal justice system in general, what does forgiveness have to do with it? Nothing. Nothing. All right. And that's the problem. Okay. What's the problem? Well, the problem is, particularly given how we've described justice, forgiveness has to be built into a relational understanding of justice. But given the current narrative of criminal justice, forgiveness is not only something that is separate from concepts of of criminal justice, but foregoes justice. For instance, if somebody is forgiven in the current narrative of criminal justice, then justice has been set aside. It's not built into any concept of forgiveness. So let's just talk biblically first, because forgiveness is a theological construct. And, you know, we have been doing a lot of uh, talking in these episodes about justice, exactly what that is and what that looks like. So, especially from a theological perspective, or from God's perspective, how does forgiveness fit into the justice of God? Well, think again about the greatest expression of God's justice. Where does He give us the clearest picture of the execution of His justice? The cross. And the crucifixion of Jesus, right? So the purpose of God executing his justice in the crucifixion of Jesus was so that the door to the forgiveness of sin could be opened up. So I think that they're instrumentally connected. So the Lord Jesus bore the penalty for our sin so that we might receive forgiveness. But without that, there's no forgiveness, right? I mean, without the full punishment of sin, forgiveness doesn't come. But we can't overlook the purpose of the punishment. The purpose of the punishment was not simply to satisfy judgment, to satisfy wrath. That wasn't the end. That was a means to the end of that punishment. The end of that punishment was so that man can be reconciled back to God, so that man can be forgiven. So any execution of justice any punishment in reference to the execution of justice has to be for the purpose of reconciliation. Has to be for the purpose of forgiveness. Okay. And and if it's not, then let's call it what it is. Judgment, vengeance, wrath. That's it. We're just trying to think through this issue. You begin this chapter with the story of a couple of guys in 2007 who escaped from the Wynn Prison Unit here in Texas. They steal a vehicle, and in their attempt to escape, they strike and kill a TDCJ uh, prison officer. 
They're recaptured. Martin is put on trial. I think the other guy takes his life. But one of the men is put on trial. He's convicted. He's sentenced to death for capital murder. At the sentencing, this woman's husband stated in the victim impact statement that there was no forgiveness for his deeds, that this man deserved to die, and that that his wife and her horse, which was also killed in this escape attempt, would be waiting there when he was executed to escort him right into hell. No possibility of forgiveness whatsoever. And this man, certainly speaking out of his grief, speaking from a human perspective, he's, he's using some theological terms here like heaven and hell and forgiveness and those type of things. But he certainly is speaking from a human perspective. In, from a human perspective, uh, how can justice or judgment or the, the punishment for sin or the punishment for a crime be mitigated by, I guess, or meted out with mercy or forgiveness, or in this particular case, if, if, if the goal is reconciliation, and here is a man whose wife has been, has been killed, and uh, again, he's speaking out of vengeance and hatred and whatever else. He wants to see this man punished to the full extent, basically executed, and evidently uh, Mr. Martin was executed in 2013. What is the possibility, I guess, of reconciliation in that sense from a human perspective? Could Martin have ever been reconciled back to Mr. Canfield or his family? I don't know. And I think the point is when we're talking about the criminal justice system. So does the system afford the opportunity for somebody to be reconciled back to society? or? for even Mr. Canfield to even think in terms of reconciliation or restoration or redemption. Well, no, it doesn't even allow him to think that way. It doesn't even afford him the opportunity as a victim to see the potential or the possibility that this guy, even though he's done this horrible thing, you know, and I think Mr. Canfield speaking out of his unimaginable pain, his anger, we can all understand his sentiment there, but the, the system doesn't afford him as a victim any real sense of how do I make sense out of this? Where do I find a sense of hope? The only hope he has is that the state of Texas puts a needle in that guy's arm and ends his life. And how does that really assuage his pain? How does that really speak to his grief? Vengeance doesn't do that. So the system doesn't even afford victims or offenders an opportunity for that. And I think that's a point of the chapter that when he speaks that there is no forgiveness for you, of course he's speaking out of his pain, of out of his anger. That's understandable. But he's also speaking uh, from the sentiment of a system that can't even allow him to think in terms of forgiveness because it's not built into the narrative of the criminal justice system. Well, but if he were a child of God and he said, and I remember, you know, quite clearly you, you know, telling the story of the woman who was the, uh, who was the manager of the, of the restaurant that you held up, uh, offering you grace on the victim and, you know, as she stood there, she said, God bless you, right? She looked you in the eyes and said, God bless you, which, uh, you know, I think uh, the way you articulated it was, it was the first time you'd ever experienced grace. So, if this gentleman had done that type of thing, I'm, I'm just 
trying to think out loud now. What if he had sat in that victim's chair and looked at uh, Mr. Martin there and said, okay, you took my wife's life. I forgive you. And I think that there probably are instances and accounts of that type of thing taking place. And maybe the blessing of that. Is there still a penalty that has to be paid, I guess? If I take a life, I guess, should I have to pay with my life? I'm thinking again in terms of the way we think about things from a human perspective. Well, is it right or is it just that punishment for the taking of a life be exacted by taking another life? You know, I don't, I don't know that we can say that in, in every case. And I don't even know if we can say that in Martin's case. I mean, think about as, as Christians, you know, if that punishment would have been exacted against the Apostle Paul or against Moses. I don't think that we can say that if a life is taken, then it's a one-for-one one exchange and it's the, the taker of a life must lose his life uh, because you can think about the potential uh, good that can come from uh, this person you know, who took a life. Look what Moses did. A guy took the life of an Egyptian soldier and ended up delivering couple of million people but from still, slavery. Certainly, but he still had to had to uh, leave the country because if he had stayed, evidently he would have lost his life. Well, yes. And so I think that the criminal justice system ought to punish crime in a way that affords people the opportunity for, again, for redemption, for restoration, for reconciliation that I don't think can occur without some conceptual understanding of forgiveness. And without that, then all we're doing in relation to punishment is exacting vengeance. And, and if that's what we're gonna do, then that's what we need to, that's what we need to, to call it. Forego talking about these fancy things like rehabilitation. Let's just push that all the way out of the equation and, and call it what it is. Okay. Well, in reality, that is where we're at right now in the criminal justice system. There's no, there's no possibility of restitution or reconciliation or any of those things, as you've mentioned before. If you were to get out of prison today and you tried to go back, if you were paroled today, and you tried to go back and find folks who were in that restaurant that day and reconcile with them or make restitution, you'd be right back in prison because that's against the law. So that is not even possible at this point. And so I, I just want to kind of clarify what we're, what we're arguing for here is maybe a, a system that has no theological underpinning that includes reconciliation, grace, forgiveness, or anything else like that. But focusing still on forgiveness from a theological perspective, if we were to implement forgiveness into the criminal justice system, you mentioned things and you've, you've talked about things like reconciliation, restitution. Redemption. Redemption. So what is necessary, I guess is my question, for forgiveness to be offered and forgiveness to be received? Well, first, I think we have to, we have to come to terms uh, with what forgiveness is. We've tended to marginalize forgiveness 
as something that is purely individualistic. You know, it's something that if you have wronged me, then I can forgive you in my heart uh, without ever saying anything to you. I forgive you in my heart for uh, the purposes of my own peace, my own well-being, my own freedom from how this wrong has bound me up or whatever. Uh, that's the way we kind of construe forgiveness. Even within the church, uh, we do that. But is that all forgiveness is? What does it even mean to forgive somebody in my heart for me to be forgiven? I think I first have to show some kind of change, be repentant, and we can easily get bogged down in talking about you know what forgiveness looks like between two people. But again, we're talking about a system. So we've talked about the goal of punishment being reconciliation, a restoration, redemption, these concepts here. Well, the vehicle that moves the rupture of a relationship through injustice, you know, through criminal acts, the vehicle that moves those ruptures of relationship back to reconciliation is forgiveness. Now, that's the the force that moves from the rupture to the reconciliation. Okay, but you seem to be making a distinction between individual forgiveness and maybe corporate or societal or... Well, we're just thinking about the criminal justice system. Now, that being the case, the state is the only institution that has a right to punish crime. I mean, let's just say that the laundromat got burglarized and you and I you know, we're, we live next door to the laundromat. We just happen to know who did it. So we load up and we go get the guys that did it. And we whip the hide off of them or whatever we do as a form of punishment for burglarizing the laundromat. Well, what's going to happen? We can't be vigilantes. We don't have a right to do that. Now we're going to go to prison. Yeah, only the state has the right to punish crime. Only the state has a right to define the parameters within which crime is punished. Only the state has a right to exercise mercy in reference to that punishment. Only the state has that right. And if the state has those rights, then it also has a right to extend forgiveness when concession is made. If, if I'm punished for a crime under the power of the state, the right of the state to punish me for something that I've done wrong, when I get into a, a position to resent what it is that I've done, or repent of what it is that I've done, begin to work towards reconciliation, redemption, restoration, and the state ought to also exercise a right to offer that to me as well. But it doesn't. Okay. So what it does or doesn't do, hang on a minute, but is repentance a necessary precursor to forgiveness? I think so. Okay. So repentance, though, is a heart issue. You know, one of the things that, that the Bible says, that you repent, you'll also likewise perish. But God looks at the heart. People like you and me, we look on the exterior. How do I know? How can the state judge repentance in the sense of, okay, these dudes that robbed the laundromat, okay, and now they've been apprehended. You and I, instead of beating the hide off of them, we called the police and said, hey, here's the guys and here's the evidence or whatnot. And so state takes them and these guys are like, oh, sorry. I mean, what is the avenue or the vehicle for the state to make that type of judgment that you have repented of anything? Well, I think that there are fruit 
of repentance, like the Bible said. And so, you know, when you think about a fruit on a tree, you can tell whether an apple tree is producing fruit. It's something that you can see. But I think the fruit of repentance is it's a visible thing. You know, you can see by the demonstration of somebody's life that they're repentant, right? But the problem with the way that the punishment of crime is exacted the state holds this responsibility and the right to punish crime but it can't make you responsible for the crime that you committed it can take you and throw you into a cell somewhere but it, that doesn't make you responsible it doesn't make you feel your responsibility or the weight of your uh, responsibility it okay, but come- you're being held re- responsible or accountable whether you feel it or not right I mean, if, if the state takes you and throws you into jail, you know, locks you up because you did something, you're being made, you know, you're being held responsible for what you, your action, whether you feel it or not or believe it or not or well, the action, or not. The action may appear to hold you responsible. And the way that I articulate this in the book is by saying that the state can forcibly revoke someone's freedom and lock them away, but that does not translate into making them realize or understand their personal responsibility to their victims in general or society in particular. So, yeah, I mean, the state can do that, but there's nothing built into it to make someone recognize or understand their personal responsibility. Now, let me give you an example. Uh, There's a program called Bridges to Life where John Sage, he started this program to where it's a victim impact course based on the concepts of restorative justice. And part of the Bridges to Life process is responsibility, accountability, confession, uh, forgiveness, restitution. This is all part of the Bridges to Life process. Well, in the process, participants in the program, they have to tell their story, kind of where they came from, how their life led up to this particular criminal act that led them into prison. And they gotta talk about their crime And then, in the latter part of the program, they have to write two letters, one letter to a family member and one letter to a victim that articulates the the Bridges to Life process. I realize that I hurt you in this way, and I'm repentant. I'm responsible for these actions in this way, and I'm repentant. I ask that you forgive me, and I'll be forever accountable to you in these ways. Well, I've seen, I can't tell you, I've I've probably facilitated Bridges to Life groups 15 times, taken the class a couple of more times, but set in these groups, led these uh, small groups, and I can't tell you how many times I've seen guys balk at that right there and refuse to recognize their responsibility. So some of these guys have already been locked up 10, 12, 14 years. And even after 14 years, they're not in a position to understand. Some of them will look you in the face and tell you they don't have a victim. So how does somebody go 14 years incarcerated in a prison system and never realize that they have a victim in their crime? But once it's made clear to them what a victim of crime is, how it is that they personally are responsible for victimizing these people in this particular way, you'll see guys, the light go on. And I've seen guys break down and cry, can't finish reading these letters when the weight of this begins to to settle on their shoulders that that they've harmed people. But again, this is somebody that's been locked up a decade, and they're just now realizing this, not as a part of the criminal justice system, 
but as a part of a volunteer program that's brought in from the outside and is able to communicate to them, hey, you're responsible for your actions. Yeah, which to me seems like the theological underpinnings that would that would lead those who who have put together bridges to life and who lead it and everything to do that because they see the. I mean, I mean, it, it comes from a faith-based response. Absolutely. So, yeah, it doesn't come from the criminal justice system per se. The criminal justice system does approve it. And I guess the reason being the administration of the criminal justice system, and I'm talking about from top to bottom, I guess, doesn't necessarily see its responsibility in rehabilitation or restoration, but in punishment or locking you know this guy up, whether he understands whether he's criminal or not is irrelevant. At some point, I just need to keep him locked up, right? I mean, that's kind of the mindset, right? Yes. In reality, that's the mindset. But ideally, I don't think that is. And again, we mentioned in our last episode, we mentioned, you know, the French thinker Foucault, who, you know, in his book Discipline and Punish, you know, he talks about the transition from a very public punishing of crime where they used to you know, erect gallows, they would stone people, tie them to a post and whip them publicly. They took it out of the, the public's eye and put it off into uh, a more private uh, setting to where the punishment of crime is outside of the public eye. And it's meted out in institutions like this. Well, when that transition happened, it happened under the ages the state entrusted these particular types of institutions to help people be better when they got out. And I think that we've established you know, in episodes in the past that it doesn't do that. And I think one of the instrumental things or one of the instrumental reasons why it doesn't do that is because, you know, it doesn't really have a goal. If you think about the mission statement of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice to uh, ensure, you know, public safety and to create positive change in the behavior of those who are housed here so that they can be successfully reintegrated back into society. Well, how does it do that? Which well, that's a reconciliation goal. Yes, ideally. But in reality, that doesn't take place. And I think for it to take place, the criminal justice system needs to be held accountable or needs to be at least answerable to its own goals, its own mission statement. How are you doing that? You know, what, what is the means by which you're doing that? So in times past, you know, they had guys not just out working on the farm, but also there were other ways to teach trades, you know, things like welding or auto repair or leather working or whatever. And those type of things for the most part have gone by the way. I know here in this particular institution, I've talked to, you know, locals who remember, you know, there used to be a barber school out here so that guys could learn how to barber so that when they got out, maybe they could, you know, have a meaningful trade which seems to me would be part of the goal of, of reconciliation. But still, you know, in terms of forgiveness, or even in, in kind of the next thing I wanted to, to come to is restitution. Just philosophically then or theologically, is restitution necessary for forgiveness? I think that that's one of the, the fruit of forgiveness. I think that if, if someone is to be forgiven, they ought to make attempts at restitution. If somebody has absolutely no desire whatsoever to make restitution in any shape, form, or fashion, then I don't think that they've 
repented. I don't think that they're in a position to receive forgiveness. So it kind of connects, it seems to me, with responsibility. So if I take responsibility, I can see my responsibility to restore. If I'm not willing to take responsibility, there's no, there's not going to be any uh, effort or interest whatsoever in uh, restitution. I'm thinking, uh, you know, biblically, for example, in the Old Testament scriptures, if I steal from you, let's say if I take, a, if I steal a hundred dollars from you, then before things, everything can be settled or I can be forgiven, I've got to pay that money back plus, say, ten percent or twenty-five percent. I can't remember. Is it add a fifth, I think, which would be uh, 20%. So in, in that sense, restitution is necessary. Now, take the example of, I guess my question is going to be, is it possible that there are instances in which restitution is not possible? For example, uh, you know, where the, where the guy escapes from prison, he kills uh, this woman, and uh, he takes a life. How how would I make restitution in that sense? Is that possible? On a personal level, you can't pay that back to the individual. But we're talking about the social concept of restitution. Can somebody make attempts or forms of restitution in a social way? Can somebody give back uh, in a social way? Yeah, I think they can, given the right setting, the right opportunities they could give back in that way because these guys were escaping from a prison unit they were already in prison for criminal acts and given the right situation what if they are in a mentorship program where they're mentoring troubled boys you know in 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 the context of that mentorship they prevent one of those young boys from committing some criminal act just because of the relationship they share and prevent them from coming to prison. Isn't, isn't that a form of paying back? Well, guys who have been convicted of murder who are making a difference right here in this unit in the way that they work with uh, other young men, this is kind of the, I guess, the whole plan or the philosophy of the field minister program, which you're a part of, guys who have long-term sentences, and a lot of those, or some of them anyway, are uh, guilty of maybe some horrendous crimes. Their lives have been changed by Christ, and now they have been taken through this program, and they are, I I mean, I personally see the difference that uh, these guys are making in the lives of younger men here in this uh, prison institution. I guess what I'm struggling with, or what maybe some of our listeners might be struggling with, is punishment, forgiveness, restitution, kind of putting all those things together. So if a man is repentant, and if he is making restitution by making a difference in other lives, maybe preventing a younger man going out and killing somebody or something, you still have that the previous crime. How do you finally get past that to release? I know that their parole is a possibility, and I think parole has a tendency, uh, and I'm, <laughs> I'm not making any comment good or bad about the parole board or what they do or don't do, but I think theoretically they're supposed to take into account those type of things. Is this guy, like if you come up for parole, they're going to look at what have you been doing? Have you been taking steps to rehabilitate yourself? Or have you been taking these classes? Or what have you been doing? Have you been 
doing bad stuff in prison, you've been doing good stuff in prison, right? I mean, so in a sense, they're kind of looking at those type of things. I'm just, I, I guess, you know, maybe, you know, just to kind of put it bluntly. So if I commit a crime and I go to prison for that crime and I am genuinely repentant and I take responsibility and I... Bearing the fruits of repentance. I'm bearing the fruits of repentance in my life. But the, the nature of the crime, according to, you know, the law, I'm supposed to spend this much time locked away as punishment. So maybe I'm forgiven by God, certainly. I've repented. I've turned my life uh, around in terms of the way I think and everything. I'm still institutionalized in this, you know, in this prison system. Should the governmental institution you know, come at that point and say, okay, well, did this crime, you served in prison a year, two years, whatever, but we can see the fruit, all right, so we're done. I I guess maybe the, the length of the sentence, I don't know exactly what I'm trying to do. Well, again, you know, we've been talking about the current narrative of criminal justice, and, you know, we've also emphasized that given the entrenchment of prisons as a means of punishing crime, I think that they can still serve a viable function in the punishment of crime. But when you think about sentencing guidelines, as they stand today, they're a direct result of the narrative. So if we, if we began to change the narrative, then those things would have to change. And when we began to think about the guidelines for which juries or judges hand down sentences for certain crimes built into that ought to be you know those types of options for those who are on parole boards because as it stands there's sentencing guidelines juries or judges they hand down a sentence somebody is sent to prison and so the only option for the parole board is that at some point when this person serves a certain percentage of this sentence they are now eligible for parole and even as it stands now, you know, you and I were joking a couple of weeks ago that Pablo is the one that determines whether somebody makes parole or not, which is a computer program that generates a bunch of information built on certain statistics in relation. But like 61% of the determining factors is the nature of the offense. So it does not matter. I can spend the rest of my natural life in prison and do all kinds of restorative or pay rest. I can do all of these kind of things. I can come up with the cure for cancer, win Nobel Peace Prizes, but none of that will ever change the nature of the offense. So even judges and juries and even parole boards, none of that is available to them to make decisions based on the fruit of repentance, a real uh, um, efforts at restitution. None of that's available to them. But doesn't the parole board look at what you've been doing? Like if you come up for parole, one of the things they're going to look at is what kind of classes you've been taking, what you've been doing in prison, if you've been working, if you've been doing whatever. So think about a, a, a pie. You know, you, you have a pie graph here. So over, over half of that, 61% of the pie is determined by nature of the, the nature of the offense. So, which will never change. Which will never change. And so a very small slice of the pie, maybe 10 or 12% of the pie, consists of those type of things. And when you what, say... What you've done in prison, your rehabilitative efforts, all of that, that's a very small s- slice of the pie. Okay, so just real quick, what is the rest of the pie? 
oh, your age, you know, how much time you've served in prison, your criminal history, you know, whether you've had other felony convictions, your institutional judgments, which would include, you know, are you a gang member inside prison? Are you uh, under the ages of, you know, a security threat group? Those type of things are factored in, into that. But what you have actually done in terms of rehabilitative efforts, you know, that's a very small slice of the pie. So I think we would have to back up in trying to change the narrative of the criminal justice system. Uh, in changing the narrative, we would have to restructure you know, sentencing guidelines and all of that so that the responsibility for crime as relationships have been ruptured, you know, whether on a personal level or just with society in general, and forgiveness is the vehicle that moves to reconciliation, restoration, redemption, that all would have to be factored into this somehow. And I think as Christians, we have a responsibility to begin to inject these types of ideas into the current narrative of criminal justice in order to reshape that narrative. Well, I guess I'm wondering how or what that should, you know, that should look like. Because I don't hear you arguing that there should there should not be sentences for particular crimes, but that they should be restructured. I'm wondering if you assault somebody, for example, or you steal a loaf of bread from the grocery store. I mean, obviously those two uh, those two crimes are different and, and should be sentenced differently. But from a theological perspective, how do you even begin to even determine that or think through that? Well, I think from a theological perspective, we have to ask the question, what is the goal of the punishment of crime? Because, I mean, we have to think that that is a given. If, if a crime is committed, just on a, a social level, there has to be some punishment for that. So I think the, the fundamental theological question is, what is the goal of punishment? Is the goal of punishment just to punish? Is the goal of punishment vengeance? Or just a pure execution of judgment? Well, theologically, as a Christian, I don't think that's the goal of punishment. I think the goal of punishment is restoration, reconciliation, you know, opportunities for redemption. I think that's it. So when we think about sentencing guidelines, I'm obviously not a, you know, going to advocate for indeterminate sentencing. But let's just say, take my case for an example. Let's just say that a life sentence is a viable punishment for robbery. Okay. Well, does that mean that I have to serve 30 years? Let's just say that there's certain criteria that I have to meet in order to be eligible for parole. And until I meet those criteria, I won't ever come up for parole. But the faster I meet those criteria, the faster I'll come up for parole, which may include accruing a certain amount of work time, may accruing a certain amount of good time uh, in relation to my earned time status. Right, my classification inside the prison, all of these different things, you know, whether or not I'm involved in rehabilitative programming, which is all voluntary anyway, you know, these type of things that would make me eligible for parole faster. Now, once I become eligible, it's still up to the parole board to determine whether or not I'm released on the outside under still some level of supervision of the state on parole. And while on parole, I still have to meet certain guidelines accomplish certain requirements as part of parole, all of this stuff here, but give somebody an opportunity to work toward that as opposed to there's nothing I can do. 
It does not matter whether I wild out down here, act a fool for the first 20 years. They're not going to care what I did 10 years ago. They're going to look at my past couple of years. If I spend the first 20 years down here uh, fist fighting every officer, making it miserable for the administration, harming the people around me, whatever I'm doing, none of that, none of that matters. If you clean it up before. Yeah, if I if I straighten it up the last decade. Okay. Or the last five years, really. I can do a quarter of a century down here doing whatever I want to do. Breaking every rule imaginable. So theologically and if we undergird all the way back at the beginning with with the theological reality that we are all created in the image of God, that this that this criminal, this person who has committed whatever crime he has committed, whatever horrendous, is still created in the image of God, and is still uh, can be can be forgiven and can be rehabilitated, redeemed, uh, reconciled, reconciled, uh, reintegrated. However, whatever re you want to talk about, if that's where we begin, now we can begin to construct how these things work. Or what it looks like. Yeah, or the theological reality that justice is a relational concept, and the theological reality that the goal of punishment is the reconciliation of people who have equal standing before one another, before God, uh, the theological reality of forgiveness. All of those things, like you say, undergird, should undergird, I think, our practice of criminal justice. Sure. And even, even though, you know, in some people's minds, you know, the policy makers or whatever, those concepts might not find fertile ground because they're theological concepts. I still think that they have a, a very real potential at viable political reform within a system that doesn't work, that has not worked for years and years and years. And I think that apart from those theological underpinnings, you know, it'll remain crippled and self-defeating. Okay, so we know that God, uh, we are reconciled to God through Christ, who in Christ did not count our sin against us, which would be a way that I would describe or define forgiveness. I don't hold your sin against you. I take it away, and, it's, and, and God, as far as the east is from the west, so if he removed our iniquity from us. Um, but in a, a human system, even one that is undergirded by theological underpinnings of forgiveness, for example. If I were to, just make this personal, if I were to kill your brother and I am convicted of that crime and I'm sentenced, even if I've got the underpinnings of forgiveness, let's take away capital punishment. So I'm sentenced to prison and in prison I take steps to rehabilitate myself, take responsibility for my crime and all those type of things, and reach out to you as the victim and take responsibility and ask you to forgive me. If you refuse that forgiveness, if you as the victim refuse forgiveness, refuse to forgive me, can the state then say, well, that doesn't matter, we're forgiven, he's, he's rehabilitated, he has working to make restitution. However, you do everything right, but the forgiveness is not offered on the part of the one who has been offended. Is it possible then at that point for the state to 
So my question is, the question that I wrote down is who forgives? Does the victim forgive? Yeah, Does the state forgive? Does the whatever? If there's not been any reconciliation, can the state go, okay, well, you've done all these things, so. Well, 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 well let's flip it around. Let's just say on the, on the front side of this thing, right, this, this type of situation occurs, I forgive you. Brother, you're forgiven. And to the point to where you and I are, our relationship is restored. We're reconciled back to one another. I've forgiven you. You've received my forgiveness. Now I tell the state, man, I've forgiven this man. Don't punish him. You think they're going to listen to that? No. No. They're still going to punish you. So it is the state's right to punish you for a crime. And I think because of that, it's also, if the state has taken on that responsibility, it's also the state's right to determine whether you are forgiven. Now, obviously, the act is still against the law. It's still resented in the face of, of the law and society. But the state no longer holds that against you. You've been forgiven of that. But there's no concept of that built into this. So I think when it, that you ask the question, who forgives, I think the state has a right to do that. Okay. And I would agree with that. And in, in just putting it in theological terms, every sin is against God. Some sin is against God and against other people. So if I strike you, I've sinned against you, but I've also sinned against God. I can receive God's forgiveness, and I have in Christ Jesus, even if you choose to hold it against me forever. So God has the right to judge. He has the right to forgive. And I think that translates to to the state's right. And I think that creates the question, if the state has a right to punish, and the state has a right to extend forgiveness you know if certain criteria is met if there's been a fruit of repentance as it were I think the question becomes do I have a right then to that forgiveness so the individual or the one who has who has sinned or who has done the crime or whatever repents takes responsibility one of the ways that you articulated here is resent the the action so you mentioned that uh, basically uh, you're in prison for robbery and that robbery took about two minutes of your life. Those two minutes you were, you were involved in this crime for about two minutes of your life. And today you resent those two minutes, you regret those two minutes, you repent of those two minutes. You can't go back and change those two minutes, but you resent it and, you, and, and that is part of repentance and taking responsibility. If we don't, if, if there's no resentment of that, then there's no repentance. And you're right that part of the responsibility requires remembering what was done to the one and who did it and requires continuing to condemn it. So you continually regret those two minutes and you can't, and as I said, you can't go back to change them. They're always going to be a part of your life. You can repent. You can receive God's forgiveness. You can even receive the offended one's forgiveness, and perhaps you did, uh, with this woman who, who offered you grace, the manager. So when that happens, then you point out that the state then has the right to relent in the punishment of crime in a way that is commensurate with forgiveness. So if there's repentance, and if there is remorse, and if there's resentment, and however you, know, you think of those things, then you are suggesting that the state then does have the right to to forgive. Then you say, well, if it has the right, then does it have to 
duty. If it has the right, does it have the duty? And you write this, if the state has a duty to its citizens, then each citizen has a right to the state's proper execution of that duty, which means that you, as the offender, the original offender, have the right to the forgiveness. Is this a theological issue? Can I demand this right? Can I demand this right of God? Can I stand before God if we move it from you know, the state to God? If, can I stand before God and say, you've got to forgive me? Well, I mean, you know, I always, I always heard, I didn't understand it. You hear the evangelistic appeals. You know, if you were to die today and stand before God's seat of judgment, and he said, why should I spare you judgment? Why should I let you into my paradise? What would your answer be? I heard the evangelist say one time, I'm going to pick up my Bible and I'm going to shake it at him and I'm going to say, because it says right there, you've got to. I'm not sure I'm going to stand before God and do that. I think I'm going to be that dude that uh, with head bowed and goes, have mercy on me, a <laughs> sinner. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a cavalier attitude, you know, to where we, where we even say, because I believed on your son. Even that, without that, just that humble resignation to where you say, why should you let me in? Well, you shouldn't. Nothing but, of myself I bring only to the cross I cling. Amen. I think the theological fact remains that, I mean, the scope of what Jesus done for us puts us in a position to where by faith God has given us a right to forgiveness. Now, I haven't necessarily thought through how to articulate that. And like you, you know, I'm somewhat hesitant to, to say that we have you know, a right to demand anything before God. But in reference to the state, if the state is going to take on the responsibility of the one thing, I think it has the responsibility of the other as well. So, if victims of crime make demands that punishment should be exacted for criminal acts, I think when certain criteria are met in reference to rehabilitation or however many reads we throw in there, I think that the person who has been punished for this crime also has a right for it to be relented. Whether the victim would agree or not. Yeah, whether the victim agrees or not. Um, you quote Clement of Alexandria in Salvation of the Rich Man. And uh, let, me, let me read what Clement wrote. Thief! Dost thou wish to get forgiveness, steal no more. Adulterer, burn no more. Fornicator, live for the future chastely. Thou who hast robbed, give back, and give back more than thou tookest. False witness, practice truth. Perjurer, swear no more. And expatriate the rest of passions, wrath, lust, grief, fear, that thou mayest be found at the end to have previously in this world been reconciled to the adversary. It is then probably impossible all at once to eradicate inbred passions, but by God's power and human intercession and the help of brethren and sincere repentance and constant care, they are corrected. And then you, you're right, so, so believers should embrace the same vision. So what, he's, what he is referring to there is, is the change of repentance. So I repent and I turn. So if I am a thief, I steal no more. If I'm an adulterer, I burn no more. If I'm a fornicator, I, I live chastely. However that, so I repent, changed. But he points out 
that this takes place by God's power and uh, and human intercession and the help of brethren and sincere repentance and constant care they are corrected okay so but what he's talking about is a is someone who has been forgiven by God and whose life has been changed by the power of God in Christ I don't see that he mentions that in this particular quote but I think that he would agree that this takes place in Christ my question is forgiveness possible apart from Jesus Christ well on a divine level no but is true punishment possible is true judgment impartial pure judgment possible apart from God well no but things as they are the state is taking on a responsibility to punish crime and I think because of that they also have a responsibility to extend forgiveness when these types of concessions are made you know and when we talk about human intercession and the help of brethren that would be the intercession of the state in somebody's life uh, the help of society for somebody to have this sincere repentance and constant care to be corrected from the things that got them in prison in the first place it's a vision that Christians can understand obviously you know from a theological vantage point but I think it's also something that can be translated into a secular sphere uh, in some way that certainly presents a better institution than the one that we have now again I think there's an issue of how the state uh, judges those things the state can't forgive me for all of my sin God can do that the state can help me come to the place of forgiveness, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration for this one thing that I've done or the crime that I've committed that it is responsible for. But I think it's a, an important thing that, again, that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we ultimately come back to. And this is what, for a child of God or for a believer, for a Christian, ought to undergird the way we approach uh, issues of criminal justice and really every other issue in our life and we've been challenged I think and we are challenged by the love of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God to take as a child of God and apply these things to a system that we are all vitally a part of whether we understand or agree or see it or not so we've concluded with the issue of rights, and in our next episode, we're going to uh, take up uh, this issue in more depth as we reflect on rights, not just what is right, but what does someone have as rights. Jason, thank you again for your thoughts and your heart, and uh, for those of you, again, who have joined us, I want to say God bless you. Hopefully this has been encouraging while also challenging you to think through these issues in a new or more concrete way. Listen next time for our conversation on further theological reflections on criminal justice. Thanks for listening to Hurt with Fetters, a podcast that helps us to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. The book Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice is available at Amazon.com.